Well, good morning. Uh, For those that I don't know, my name is Matt Morton. Uh, Brian Fisher is on the college retreat this weekend, so he's not here. And uh, also, I know a few college students came in after Tim announced earlier that this is actually the main service this morning. So I know a few of you walked in with confused looks. Uh, We are all here together uh, because there's no power across the street. So if if you're wondering what's going on, that is what's going on. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, verses 1 through 7 this morning, continuing in our series from Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, which we'll read in a few moments. Uh, But as we begin, I I want you just to imagine a scenario with me for a moment this morning. Imagine that tonight you come over to my house for dinner, and we have all kinds of great food. There's hamburgers freshly grilled, there's hot dogs and brisket and fruit and salad and uh, all kinds of chips and every delight that you could eat. And we top it all off with my wife's famous homemade chocolate chip cookies. And you come in and I say, uh, eat whatever you want. Go wherever you want. Whatever you want is yours. You can do whatever you want in my house. Uh, And so you say, great. And you begin to get a plate and you fill it up. And as you're filling up your plate with all of this food, uh, you run across this right in the center of my kitchen. Cookie of death, do not eat. And you look at it for a moment and you think, what is this? So you call me over and you say, Matt, what is this? And I say, that's the cookie of death. Do not eat that. And you say, well, what will happen if I eat it? And I say, self-explanatory, right? (laughs) Cookie of death, don't eat it. And you say, well, why do you have it here in the middle of your kitchen? And I say, that's too many questions. And I walk away. Now, you, as you're beginning to eat your food, you might think a few things here, right? One would be, uh, why is this there? You might question my benevolence, maybe my sanity. Uh, Maybe you think this is the best cookie and Matt's reserving it for himself. The first thing you would think is, why is it there? The second thing, if you're honest, that many of you would think is, I want to eat that cookie, right? Because that's probably the best one. If he took the time to label it and say, don't eat that cookie, that's probably the one that uh, he really wants to eat himself. Surely Matt wouldn't put a poisoned cookie in the center of his own kitchen. That must be the best one. And so your mind would be filled, I would imagine, with thoughts about this while you were also trying to enjoy the food that I had prepared and my wife had prepared. Now, by now you've figured out that's the scenario essentially that we have in Genesis chapter 3. God created the man and the woman. He put them in the Garden of Eden and he said to them, eat freely, literally in the Hebrew, eat, eat. The verb is repeated twice. Eat freely from any tree of the garden. But there's one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat from it. And on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. You will die, die. You'll really die on the day you eat from that tree. So here they are in this perfect environment. They've got fellowship with God. They've got everything they need and more, but there's one restriction. And of course, as we read that, the question that comes up is, why in the world does God even put that tree in the first place, in the garden? We're going to talk about that. Now, 
Most of you, I would imagine, know the end of this story, that Adam and Eve did not resist eating from that tree, that they ate from it. And when they ate from it, all kinds of consequences enter into their lives and all kinds of consequences entered into our life as well. But we're not going to talk this morning primarily about the consequences. What we're going to talk about is the temptation that led them to that point. In other words, what are the things that they began to think and believe and see in order to lead them to sin? What does the serpent say that is so compelling? And the reason we're going to talk about that before we talk about the consequences is because many of us never really think about the temptation that leads us to sin. If you think about the temptations that you struggle with on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, the sins that you would say, that is really a thorn in my side, uh, often we've never thought about what leads us to sin in that way. Maybe if we do, we think, well, it's the fault of my culture. It's the fault of this image I can't get away from. It's the fault of my kids. It's the fault of whoever. But we don't ever think, what is it in my mind and my heart that leads me towards sin? The great thing about Genesis 3 is we have, in a sense, an anatomy of what temptation looks like. And what we're going to find is that temptation finds its root really in our hearts. For some, your sin that you really struggle with or sins may be more obvious. They may be ones that everybody sees. It may be that you struggle with some sort of substance abuse or outbursts of anger or some sort of sexual lust. And those are things that are obvious to you. They are obvious to those around you. It may be that it's something subtler than that, that it's gossip or envy or pride or greed, and it works its way consistently into your heart and your life and you can't seem to push it away. As we, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see what is it that leads us? What are the thoughts in our hearts and minds that lead us towards sin? And then how can we find victory through the power of God's Spirit? That's, that's where we're headed. So Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Let me read the passage for us as we start. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, before we dive into the specifics of this temptation, I just want to make a couple of notes about the setting itself. All right, the first one is this. God is present with them in the garden. We know that from chapter 3, verse 8, that God would come through the garden and he would talk with them and they could hear his voice and they could respond. In chapter 2, we see God issuing commands to them, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And then he tells them, there's that one tree, don't eat from that tree. So God is talking to them, God is there. Even while they are talking to the snake, God is there. The reason this is significant is because my guess is, if you're like me, you've thought at some point, if God would just show up, and tell me what to do or what not to do, I'd obey, right? If I were about to eat that extra cookie, he would say, don't do that, right? That will lead you down a path you don't want to go on. 
If I'm about to turn on my computer and look at what I shouldn't, he says, stop, that's going to hurt you. And we think that would stop us. The reality is Adam and Eve had that. Here is God in the garden talking with them. And yet the reason that they sin has to do with what they begin to believe even with God's presence right there. The truth is, God's presence is always with us. He is there in that moment, and his spirit lives in us. And so this is critical. God is present. Secondly, Adam and Eve are both present. We find out in verse 6 that Adam is standing right there because Eve grabs the fruit, and then it says she ate some, and she turned around and gave it to her husband with her. He's with her, and there's no doubt in the original Hebrew that it's clear he's been standing there with her before the snake. Now, the reason I point that out is because Eve's the only one that talks to the snake. Adam is silent, but he's present. So, gentlemen, you're not off the hook. As we look at this passage, the man and the woman, all of the human race, is held accountable for listening to the snake and disobeying God. And in fact, when God pronounces the curse on the man and the woman, he actually pronounces it on the man first. The man is held more responsible because of his position in this family. So Adam and Eve are both present. They're both there. Thirdly, God made the snake. Now, right in verse 1, we have the serpent is craftier than all the beasts of the field which God had made. That should raise a question in your mind. Why did you make that snake? God, there's a snake, and the snake is going to cause them problems. Why'd you make it? Why is it there? Not only had he made it, but God had clearly warned them. Verses 15 to 17, don't eat from that tree. So not only had he made the snake, not only had he made the tree, but then he warned them, don't eat from it. And at a first reading, that seems a little unkind, doesn't it? To place this temptation right in their path and then say, no, don't touch it. Uh, You've probably thought that before. If God doesn't want me to be envious, if God doesn't want me to gossip, why did he give me Facebook, right? If God doesn't want me to lust, why did he give me these desires and then put me in a world that is full of sexual sin and lust and images of it everywhere? If God doesn't want me to be angry all the time, why do I have children, Why does God allow us to be tempted? And here is the key, because uh, the source of our temptation, and James says this, it's our own selfish desires. The problem is that the sin is in you. It's not out there, it's in here. What does the temptation do? It reveals the sin that's already in me. See, I'm not angry because my spouse is so frustrating. I'm angry because I'm an angry person. All that person's action does is reveal and highlight what's already there. And so God does not cause us to be tempted, as James says, but God allows temptation into our life to highlight these areas in which we need to change. And as you look at Adam and Eve, part of being in the image of God means that I have the ability to represent God's character, to be like him. Now, the irony is the snake says, look, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he's withheld this tree. The reality is God wants them to be like him to choose holiness, to choose righteousness, to choose truth. But in order to do that, they have to have an opportunity to do so. And that's what the tree provides. It provides a day after day opportunity to trust God and to choose to obey. So God does not tempt them, but God allows this temptation into their life so that they can grow in holiness, 
so that they can know the areas they need to grow and ultimately so they can recognize the grace that is necessary to come back to a relationship with God. Erwin Lutzer says, temptation is God's magnifying glass. It shows us how much work he has left to do in our lives. That's what the tree and the snake accomplish. Uh, Those of you who work out know that in order to get stronger, you need resistance, right? I can't get stronger just by doing this. I wish I could, right? That would be awesome. But you need resistance. You need to lift something that is hard, that is heavy, that pushes against your body and your muscles in order to grow stronger. Similarly, as we grow in holiness, we need, we need to push against challenges and trials and temptations in order to become more like the character of Jesus Christ. So God had warned them and God had made the snake, but God is calling them to trust him. Okay, so now watch what the serpent does to lead them into sin. All right, the temptation, the presence of the tree itself and the presence of the serpent itself is not in and of itself sin. But what the serpent does is he takes it from the level of temptation to sin. Now watch what he does, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? All right, now right away we have Adam and Eve walking through the garden. And as they're walking through, this serpent starts talking to them. Now that raises questions in my mind. Why is a snake talking? Did all the animals talk? Why does Eve not seem surprised by this at all? She just starts talking back to him. Moses doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us who the snake is other than that God made it. Now, what we find out in the book of Revelation, chapters 12, chapter 20, is that this serpent is Satan, or at least that this serpent is controlled by Satan. But we don't know why it seems normal to Eve that he starts up a conversation. All we know is as they're walking by, he gets involved, the serpent gets involved in a discussion that really didn't belong to him. It's none of his business. But as they're walking by, he says, come over here. Sorry, I had to do that. You know, it's just, you can't have fun with a talking snake. You can't have fun with much. Okay, so the servant says, come over here. Is it true? He says, I heard a rumor, basically. Is it true? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, did God say that at all? Absolutely not. That's the exact opposite of what God said. God said, eat, eat from any tree of the garden. But the snake pretends like, hey, someone told me. God won't let you eat. And what does he introduce? He introduces the concept that God is not good. And that's where temptation begins. He introduces the concept that God is not good. God wants to restrict you. I don't know if you've ever heard a child say something like this. You never let me do anything. Uh, Those of you, all of us who have been teenagers have perhaps expressed that at one point. You never let me do anything. So you go to your parents and you say, look, all of my friends are jumping into a gorge. They are bungee jumping into a gorge with dental floss tied around their ankles. I want to go. And your mom says, no, sorry, bad idea. You never let me do anything, right? Now, is that true? Of course it's not true. Right, as we're growing up, we recognize there are many things our parents allow us to do. There are a few things because we're not ready, because they want to protect us, because it's dangerous that they say no. But we blow it out of proportion. Even as adults, we can do this. I can remember when I was 16 and uh, I got my driver's license, my dad decided that I was not yet ready to drive around by myself. I was not a good enough driver. So he delayed me for a few weeks from actually being able to take his car. This infuriated me. 
I felt so hemmed in. I felt so restricted. And I remember saying something to this effect to him. uh, You don't ever want me to go anywhere. And so I'm not even going to get my driver's license ever. And I'll stay in this house and just ride with you forever because that's what you want, right? (laughs) Now, I guarantee you that, that is not what he wanted, okay? But it felt like that to me. You just want to restrict me. You just want to keep me down. And Satan introduces this concept. And watch what Eve's response is, verses 2 and 3. She says this, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Now notice, she doesn't say we may eat freely. She eliminates the second occurrence of that verb. She says, yeah, we can eat. Whereas God had said, eat, eat. She says, yeah, okay, so there's some trees. She minimizes God's provision. And then she says, but the fruit of, from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Notice she expands the prohibition. She adds this little thing, or touch it. Did God say that? No. Now, is not touching a great way to not eat? Sure. If you never touch, you're probably never going to eat. But the point here is that Eve is hearing all of a sudden more restrictions then God is placed. We can't touch it. We can't come near it. We probably can't even breathe the same air as this tree. This is God's tree, right? We can't approach it. God is restrictive. And then he says, then she says, or, or we'll die. And again, she eliminates the second occurrence of that verb. Not, you will surely die, but we'll die. And so the serpent has introduced into her mind this idea that God is not good. And I think we do that, even as adults. We overstate God's prohibitions and understate his blessings, and we minimize the consequences of sin. So we say, look, I, I, yeah, I may have an anger problem, okay, but it's, it's not as bad as, as Bill's drinking problem, right? The consequences aren't going to be really all that bad. Or we just wonder, is God really good? Why would God not give me a spouse? Or why would he give me this spouse, right? Why would God not allow me to have that house, that car? Why is it that that guy got that job when I wanted it? Why is it that that person is always invited to all the parties I see on Facebook all the time and I'm not? Because God doesn't want the best for me. And that's what we begin to believe. Temptation questions God's goodness and then the serpent goes on and questions God's truthfulness. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like a God knowing good and evil. So once he's undermined God's goodness and he he sees that Eve is beginning to buy into this, he pounces and he says, look, you surely, you're not, you're not surely going to die. The best way I think to understand this uh, is he's really saying, "Mm, it's not so certain that you're going to die. He undermines that second occurrence of the word die because Eve had omitted it. He brings it back. He says, yeah, God said you're definitely going to die. You might. You're probably not going to. What's really going on is that God is trying to withhold something from you. He knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to have all this wisdom and you'll be like God and you'll know good from evil. And he doesn't want that for you. And so he said, don't eat it just because he is a restrictive, mean God, not because he's trustworthy. And he undermines the truthfulness of God's word. I have a three-year-old son who loves to climb on things. And sometimes he will... uh, 
kind of climb halfway up on our coffee table and then he'll put his legs over on the sofa and he'll kind of try to uh, inch his way along between the sofa and the coffee table. And I will say, Samuel, stop doing that. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. And invariably he says, I won't fall. Now, is it true that every time he does it, he will fall? No, certainly not. But eventually, if he keeps doing it, he will. And in fact, at times he has. But when he is confronted with, you're going to fall, his instinct is to say, I won't fall. In other words, Daddy, if you try this, you might fall. All those other toddlers out there, they might fall. But not Samuel, right? I know what I'm doing. Isn't that what we do? God really can't be trusted when he says that looking at this picture is destructive. I mean, after all, it's not as bad as actually cheating on my spouse, right? So it can't really be that bad. It's not really hurting anybody, except maybe me, but, but who really cares? God wants me to be happy. If God wants me to be happy, he would give me A, B, C, D, E. And if I'm not happy and I don't have those things, I need to reach out and grab them because God is trying to withhold. The reason God, I believe, has said I can't have this is because maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he likes that guy better. Maybe he's unfair. And so not only now am I questioning his goodness, I'm questioning the truthfulness of his word. When in reality, God has said, you have everything you need in me. And the reason that I don't want you to engage in sin is because it destroys. It leads to death and life is found in me. And that actually becomes the key for this contrast between life and death, by the way, in Genesis 3. It's not that they physically died on the day they ate from the tree. It's that death means separation from God, from his good purposes, and from the fullness of the life he intended them to have. Remember, he told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and represent me. And now for the rest of the Bible, you're going to have this tension between those trying to represent God and those who are trying to destroy them. And even within ourselves, we have this tension. And yet God says, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust me, my way is better. But temptation questions God's truthfulness. And then lastly, it says, God's not enough. God's not enough. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, notice the progression. Eve looks at the fruit. She sees it's good for food. In other words, uh, that's going to be tasty. That's going to meet my needs. It's going to fill my stomach. It's great food. That's not a bad thing, right? In fact, God made a good tree. The tree is not bad in that it's good for food. She sees that it's pretty. It's aesthetically appealing, right? So it looks good to her. It's a delight to the eye. So that's not a bad thing, right? All of us have seen fruit or food that you go, yeah, that just, it looks good. I want that. And then she says, it's desirable to make one wise. Again, not a bad thing to be wise. But she says, I want that in a way and at a time that God has not given. And in fact, that's what most sin is. It is taking something God has made, but in a way or time that he has not granted. So I take God's good gifts and I twist them. And she says, look, it's good for food. God's trying to keep that from me. It's a delight to the eyes. It's pretty. 
and it's going to make me wise. There's a great parallel here between this passage and 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Lust of the flesh. It's good for food. It makes my body feel good. That's what John is saying. That often there is a sensual element to our temptations that it appeals to our senses. It's going to make my body feel right or meet the needs of my body. The lust of the eyes, that is, I look at it and I say, that looks great. I want that because it just looks good. It's going to make me look good, but I just, I need that. I need that house. I need that Bentley, right? Because it looks good. And then the boastful pride of life. This will make me smarter, wiser, more popular than everybody else, or at least some people. And so Eve Eve looks, and these three aspects of the temptation appeal to her, and so she grabs what God has not given, because she doesn't trust God. And that's the way that temptation plays out. Temptation is not about what is out there. It's about what's in here. It's not the fault of the tree. The tree was good. It's that she ate the tree. Adam ate the tree in a way that God did not intend at a time that God had not given. And so they fall into sin. Think for a moment again about the sins that weigh you down. Let's just take one that uh, many struggle with, gossip. Where does gossip come from? Scripture talks about gossip, says gossip is a bad thing. Where does it come from? Okay, so you open up Facebook and Twitter and you go, man, that guy over there, uh, he's better looking than I am or he's more popular than I am. Everybody invites him to parties. They didn't invite me. That makes me angry. That makes me feel like God is not providing or meeting my relational needs. I can't trust God to do that. I need to somehow get for myself what that person has because I need that. But I don't have it. So what are my options? Well, I can try to grasp it, right? I can try to cling to people. I can crash the party, force my way in. Or what I can try to do is if I can't have what he has, I'll try to bring him down to where I am. So, yeah, he's, he's popular. But have you seen his kids? They're kind of out of control. Yeah, she's, she's beautiful. But have you heard the way that she spends her money? Let me tell you a story about that that I read on Twitter. right? And you pass it along. And what's happened is I don't trust God's goodness to give for me what I need. I don't believe his word about the consequences of sin. And I say, he's not enough. And if I can't get what I want, I'll knock the knees out of somebody else who has it. And if you look at your heart and your life and the patterns that flow from it, the odds are good that every sin you struggle with flows from this heart of, I don't trust God. I don't believe his character. And I need more than he has given when he hasn't given it to me. And that's where sin originates for Adam and Eve and for us. And as they eat from that fruit, she eats the fruit she gives to Adam, he eats from the fruit. What happens? Well, their eyes are opened, aren't they? But not in the way the snake promised. Notice it says their eyes are open and they have this knowledge. What is this knowledge, this wonderful knowledge that the tree gave them? That they're naked. Great, so all of this knowledge that the snake promised that we could be like God, what does it really reveal? That I'm vulnerable and weak and I need the grace of God and now I'm a sinner exposed. 
It's interesting, the tree made them wise. But, it, but you go, yeah, is wisdom bad? No, of course not. The Bible encourages us to be wise. You know what else it says? If you want wisdom, how can you get it? James chapter 1. Ask God. Ask God. What could Eve have done? What could Adam have done? Said, God, we want to be wise. Will you make us wise? And God says, sure. Isn't that what Solomon did? But instead they said, God doesn't want me to be wise. I'm going to make myself wise. And they take from that tree. God is a lavish giver of gifts because of his grace. And yet we believe he's a miser. So temptation takes us down that road. So the question then is, what do we do? What is the solution if I recognize in my heart that now, ever since Adam and Eve, everybody is a sinner? It's infected my heart. It's infected my soul. So what do I do? The first thing is this, flee. Flee temptation. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Think of Joseph in Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. What does he do? He turns around and he runs away. There are times that you just need to run away. Some of you need to turn off Facebook. You need to get rid of the internet at your home. You need to not walk through certain aisles at the grocery store. Uh, last week we had some friends over and they came over and they were nice enough to bring uh, some food when they came and we ate together and we provided some, they provided some. And one of the things they brought was a big bag of nacho cheese Doritos. Now I, I, I have to confess this, I have a history with these things. Um, when they are present, I have zero self-control. And I have found over the years that if they are present, I can stand there and look at them and go, don't eat so good, don't eat, oh, oh gosh. And eventually, I'm going to eat them, right? Which I did. Okay. Now, there's a solution. I never buy them. Okay. In fact, I try not to even look at them. When I'm walking down the aisle in the grocery store, I'm like, no, you know, and just kind of, as they're calling out to me, okay? Often the solution is, you just don't go near it. You flee temptation. Now, sometimes I recognize you can't, right? There are some times that uh, temptation finds you. You go to someone else's house, someone brings something to your house, you hear about something that makes you envious, prideful, greedy, whatever it may be. So what do you do then? Remember the truth, and here is the truth. First of all, God is good. All the time, God is good. He never has stopped wanting the best for you. And the best for you is to be holy, is to reflect his character, is to know him. There's nothing in the world that will provide for you what God will provide. Now, it might provide pleasure. It might provide a feeling of happiness. It might provide a number of things, but it will not provide life now and for eternity in relationship with God. God is good. He wants you to know him and be like him so you can fulfill your purpose, which is to represent him and to share him with others. God is good. God is good. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Memorize it. Put it on your mirror. The Lord is good. So when that temptation assaults you and says, God doesn't really want the best for me, you say, the Lord 
is good. The Lord is good. And God is good. Secondly, you are responsible. You're not a helpless victim. Lance read James chapter 1 earlier. Can't say God is tempting you. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own desires. I'm responsible. It's not my computer. It's not my spouse. It's not my kids. It's not my culture. It's not the TV. It's not a bag of chips, right? I'm responsible. And God has empowered me in his image to make choices that either reflect him or choices that will lead me and others away from him. And then Jesus defeated sin. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he defeated sin once and for all. You say, well, what does that mean practically? Practically, it means the Spirit of God lives in your life. You have the power and ability to overcome sin. But even more than that, you are no longer under its rule. All right, Romans chapter 6, 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are dead to it. Uh, I was thinking this week about the worst job that I ever had when I thought about this passage. The worst job I ever had was one summer in college. I worked at a law firm. At the time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, so I wanted to get some experience at a law firm, learn a little bit about the law. And I walked in on the first day and they said, okay, here's what we need to do. We have to clean out our file cabinet. And, uh, so we want you to help us with that. They walked me into their filing, I'm sorry, their filing room. They walked me into their filing room and uh, the ceilings were about as high as this room. And floor to ceiling, you had those uh, movable shelves that rolled back and forth on tracks. And all along those shelves, floor to ceiling, were these little files about this big. And they said, here's what we need you to do. You need to go and pull out all the files that are prior to like 1972 or something and shred them. So for eight hours a day, for three months, I sat in the chair and I went, right? And that was all I did all summer long. And it was one of the saddest jobs I've ever had. Because I remember sitting there thinking, literally, literally, a monkey could do what I'm doing right now. Like, people say that about uh, tedious jobs. Literally, I was like, anybody anybody could do this, an animal, right? Now, I was so glad when the summer was over, and now I go, okay, I've got a job that I love. I work with people that I really enjoy. I get to do things that I like. Now, imagine tomorrow I go sit down in my office, and here comes this lawyer from this firm, and he says, our filing cabinet's getting a little bit cluttered again. We need you to come back. Come back and do what? Well, clean it out. Clean it out. That's your job. Remember before that was really good? You cleaned it out. We liked that. Come back and give us a couple of months. No, right? I'm not going to do that. I don't work for you anymore. I have a new boss. Okay, that's what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Sin comes knocking and it says, hey, you remember what you did yesterday? You remember what you did last week? I own you. Come on. Let's go another round. No. You don't own me. I have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have no power. And my God is good. And he wants to give good things. And he's given me the capacity to choose. Through the power of his spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you don't own me. So I've literally put these three facts uh, on a piece of paper that I refer to in the midst of temptation. God is good. I'm responsible. Jesus defeated sin. Doesn't own me anymore. Right? So you remind yourself of that truth. 
And then you practice gratitude. Ephesians 5.20, I always give thanks for everything, every day. If I'm grateful for what God has given, I won't grasp at what he has not. Gratitude is the greatest antidote, I think, to temptation because it says, look, God has given so many things. If Adam and Eve, at the very first sign of that servant, when that servant comes along and says, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? If Eve had said, look around you, you creepy snake. There are so many trees that we can eat from. God has given them freely, freely, freely. He's given us everything and he has said not to eat from this one because he wants to be the source of our life and wisdom. So see you later. If they had practiced gratitude, the temptation would not have brought them down. Gratitude is an antidote to temptation. And then finally, seek community. Find a group of men and women who will encourage, challenge, and strengthen you. I've been fortunate over the last several years to have two men in my life that I am able to pray with, share with, talk about the struggles that we have, right? And it's so much more than getting together even once a week and just saying, yeah, I struggled in the same way last week that I did this week. Instead, throughout the week, if one of us is struggling, if one of us needs prayer, if one of us has had a hard time, we text the other, we pray for the other, we call the other to be in each other's lives because you cannot live the Christian life successfully alone. God has placed men and women with you to be true community to help you grow in Jesus Christ. So flee. If you can't, remind yourself of truth. Be thankful for all God has given. Seek community. And as you practice those things, the Spirit of God will work in your life and it is possible to find victory over sin. I want to provide one resource there's a book called Getting to Know, How to Break a Stubborn Habit by Erwin Lutzer that I quoted from earlier. A great book on what are the heart issues behind sin and temptation and stubborn sins in your life and how do you overcome them. So getting to know. We will also put on uh, our website on Facebook, website, the app, and Twitter some resources and some verses and thoughts to help you throughout the week. Remember that at all times God is good and temptation is an opportunity for us to grow closer to him so that we can reflect and represent his character. And victory over sin is possible through Jesus who died and rose again. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray give us uh, energy and wisdom throughout this week to recognize temptation and to overcome it. Father, there are even some in here now that feel that they are drowning in sin. Even as Christians, they feel unable to overcome it. And I pray that you would give each of us both the motivation and the ability to overcome it. Father, I pray we would want to transform into your likeness and then that your spirit would allow us to do it. Let us remind ourselves constantly of what is true and what is right. Lord, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.